a few weeks ago, and it was just a few weeks ago, we had a snowstorm. Do you remember? Yeah. One of 10 or 15 snowstorms this last winter. And uh, Brian and Julie were scheduled to come on a mission Sunday back in March, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we couldn't make it work that day. We canceled just about everything that day, including them driving up from Des Moines. We chose not to have them drive from Des Moines that day. So today we're, we're redoing, we're resetting, we're rebooting our mission Sunday. And Brian and Julie are here to help us with that. Um, just a little point of information, we're going to have a Sunday school hour after worship service today. There are refreshments being prepared in the kitchen for us. Brian and Julie are gonna talk a little more about their ministry during that hour. There's also kids time today for mission Sunday. We're redoing all of that and they're gonna have a great time downstairs in the, with the kids' mission Sunday as well. So we're redoing it all today, and we're glad that Brian and Julie are here to celebrate with us. You guys have the task of opening our eyes to see what God's doing in the world. One of the values that we have as a, as a missions church, as our missions team is working on it, is to help be a part of raising up global leadership. And you've seen a little bit, gotten a little taste of that already through the video. Brian and Julie are part of that ministry of helping to raise up leaders across the globe for the sake of the kingdom. And uh, that's a value for us too, so I'm hoping that you'll throw some wood on that fire for us today. Right. Thank Brian, you. Brian, come and brother. share with us. Yeah, thanks, appreciate it. Good morning, Valley Free. How are we doing today? Good. Julie and I come from Valley Church in West Des Moines, Iowa. And so Valley Church greets Valley Free today. Thanks for having us here. You know what I need to do before I get going? Let me get a picture. Can I get a picture of you guys? Okay. Squeeze in. All right. I'm going to have to do two. All righty. I got it now. You guys look great. Zach, how we doing, buddy? Good seeing you. Before I get going, I did want to say something really quickly. Yesterday, I had the privilege of being at a men's event yesterday at Kurt's house, and I was blown away at the caliber of the men in this church. Uh, Zach gave a devotion. Uh, Gavin, I, sorry to single you out. You're going to college in the fall. What an incredible young man. I was floored at just the level of maturity. If this is what Valley Free produces, keep doing what you're doing, because this is great. Like the future of the church is in good hands from what I saw you know, yesterday. So thank you so much. Uh, my name is Brian. This is my wife, Julie. We've, I've been a free church pastor, an evangelical free church pastor, for 23 years. And recently, God has allowed us to switch gears to, to move from pastoring in the U.S. to shepherding God's flock worldwide. So I'll speak a little bit about that later. But we have something in common with you guys. So now, from this day forward, we are forever a part of the Valley Free family. And what started that out is, in the back there, Kathleen Isabel, her son Jacob, uh, married my and Julie's daughter, Susanna, at, at the end of April. So we're family, like, in Christ, but we're family, like, through marriage as well. And so we are super thrilled. We love Jacob. You guys know him. He's a great young man, loves the Lord. And, uh, and they were over just a few nights ago. It's great to see them. So, I want to show a couple cartoons, three cartoons, to kind of get us primed for, for this morning. Is that okay? Here's the first one. So, the first one is this. There's like three cavemen, and one of them gets eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You see that? You see his feet wiggling? 
bad day for that guy. But one of the guys, we don't know which one, he says, he says, oh great, now I have survivor's guilt. Right? So, so guilt. Look at, look at the second one. Look at the second one. So there's a couple phobias at play here. So there, there's, a, there's a phobia called coolrophobia. It's fear of clowns, right? Clowns are a little creepy. Some people like them, but most people don't. But there's also another phobia called eatrophobia, and that's fear of doctors. And the clown has a fear of doctors because he says, doctors scare me. Now, the funniest thing is, like, this brother, this clown committed. He's out in public, like, at the doctor's office dressed as a clown. So this guy's he's in it to win it. So that's fear, guilt, fear. The last one is shame. Look at this one. He says, your, um, your, your, your feelings of guilt are a deep limbic system problem. You medical people, you know what that is. The rest of us don't, but it doesn't matter. And, and he says, and no progress after all these months of therapy, shame on you. So you get a little guilt and a little shame thrown in there. So, you know, today, as you guessed it, we're going to talk about guilt, fear, and shame. Now, that plays heavily in, in our ministry with Reach Global because... Um, and I'll get into it a little bit later, but it, guilt, fear, and shame is everywhere, including in this room here this morning. We're going to talk about a few things regarding guilt, fear, and shame. Number one, how they entered into the human condition, happened back in the Garden of Eden. We're also going to talk about how these things affect our thought processes, how they affect the way we view God, the way we view ourselves, the way we view other people, the way we treat other people. And most importantly, we're going to talk about how we can be free from the influence, the controlling influences of these three things. This is really important for everyday life, really important for our lives with one another and with God. And so when we approach the scripture, uh, no matter when, especially in, in the preaching time, when we approach the scripture, what we're looking for is what's the big idea of the passage? God has something that he wants us to know. Now, we're going to be in John chapter 9 this morning, so if you want to flip in your Bibles there or scroll over in your devices to, to John chapter 9, we're going to be there. Now, there's a couple ways that you could pull a few different big ideas out of John chapter 9, but this is what we're going to go for today. You'll see it on the slide. The big idea of this passage is that only Jesus can give us freedom from our guilt, fear, and shame. If you're a note taker in your worship folder, there's an outline. If, you like to, if you're a compulsive fill in the blanker, is that a thing? <laughs> I think it is. I am. I'm one of those people. Um, you can write that in there. Only Jesus can give us freedom from our guilt, fear, and shame. Now, what do we need to know? We're going to ask a few questions here this morning. The first is, is what do we need to know? Well, it all goes back to the beginning. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God created a world that was perfect. He said it was very good. He placed Adam and Eve in this world. Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of God's creation. The only beings in all of creation made in the image of God. He places these two people into this perfect world, and he pronounces his actions very good. We read about that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, and also verse 31. Now, God gave our first parents one command to obey. Adam and Eve disobeyed this command. He said, look, look at all these trees. You can have the fruit of any of these trees, but, you know, that one over there, stay away from that one. One command. They disobeyed the, the command, and as we all know from the Bible and from personal experience, 
the consequences were pretty disastrous because sin and brokenness entered into the world. Now, when this sin occurred, Adam and Eve went from being innocent in the eyes of God to being guilty of breaking God's command. So from innocence to guilt. They went from being fearless to being fearful. They actually hid from God uh, when, when God came into the garden. And lastly, they went from being unashamed to being ashamed of their nakedness and trying to cover it, trying to, to hide it. And so there are three responses to sin in human beings. And you guessed it, guilt, fear, and shame. Right? You guys are good. Let's try that again. Guilt, fear, and shame. You guys are really good. Um, these three responses, curiously enough, <clears throat> have, have also become the foundation of three types of cultures. Now look at this slide here. Look at all these words, all these words here. So look at these words and listen as I'm talking. The first type of, of human culture that we see are guilt-innocence cultures. Now these are individualistic societies, mostly Western. We live in a guilt-innocence culture here in the West. And in this kind of culture, people who break the law are guilty, and they seek justice or forgiveness to rectify a wrong. So guilt, innocence. The second type of culture is fear, power culture. Look at the words on the next slide. Fear, power cultures. These refer to, maybe this word is new to you, but animistic cultures. They're, they're typically found in tribal places, mostly in Africa, but you see it in places in Asia and Latin America as well. And this is a kind of culture where people who are afraid of evil and harm pursue power over the spiritual world through magical rituals. Yes, I assure you, this is alive and well, even amongst professional people in much of the majority world. Like, trust me, I've seen it. Many of you have probably seen it as well. The last type of culture that we see, and, and you can see the words on this next slide that pertain, pertain to this, are shame-honor cultures. Now, these describe collectivistic cultures. We're, we're individualistic here, but these cultures are collectivistic, very common in the East, very common in the Middle East, Latin America. And in these kind of cultures, people are shamed for not fulfilling group expectations, and they seek to restore their honor before the community. It's a very, very big deal. Now, for sure, Every culture on the planet experiences all three, guilt, fear, and shame in response to sin. But one of these sin responses really does tend to dominate a given culture and, by extension, the lives of the people living in that culture. Now, we're going to talk some about that now, but we'll talk more about it in the Sunday school hour when Jesus, or Jesus, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> Close. Very, like Jesus and Julie. She's a really close second. <laughs> Boy, that was, a good, that was a good Freudian slip, right? I'm not Freudian, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, um, when Julie and I talk about that in our, in our time a little bit later, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how that impacts ministry and missions in the world and all this. But um, so we, we've gotten a little bit of an intro into these three things. And so why do we need to know this? That's the second question I want to ask this morning. Why do we need to know about guilt, fear, and shame? Well, it's important for us to be aware of the presence of these three things, not only in our culture at large, but also in our personal lives, because they play into our interpersonal dynamics in a really, really big way. Now, we live in a culture that is predominantly guilt-innocence, but 
we all experience the sinful effects of fear and shame as well. Every last one of us. We may camp out on one more so than the others, but we all experience all three of these things. And unfortunately, we all have the tendency to control others by using guilt, fear, and shame to get our way. It's unfortunately one of the hallmarks of what it means to be fallen people in a fallen world. So that brings us to our first point. You see it up there on the screen. Point number one, guilt, fear, and shame are weapons that are used by us and against us. Guilt, fear, and shame are weapons used by us and against us. And so we see this syndrome in action in John chapter 9. If you, if you want to turn there, we're not going to read the whole entire chapter. I'll summarize some, a lot of it, and we'll camp out on certain points of it. But we see this syndrome at work in John 9. In this passage, uh, you know it well, Jesus healed a man who was born blind. A huge messianic kind of miracle. Messianic meaning, you know, this was proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It was a big deal. The thing of it is, is he did this on the Sabbath. He did it on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders of, of that day, they were called Pharisees. They didn't like this. Now, the Pharisees, some of you may know, they were in the eyes of the people, they were like rock stars. They were the, the good guys. But really, they were very cranky and very legalistic, and, and they just really, more, more so than not, they just missed the boat, didn't connect with God in favor of just trying to have the appearance that they were awesome and they were good, but inside, not really good people, not really good people. And so, in the people's eyes, they were great, but in, in Jesus' eyes, they, they really were, were missing the boat. And so, a lot of conflict, a lot of conflict, and we'll see some of that here today. Um, these Pharisees, these leaders, they, they, they used this occasion of Jesus' miracle of healing this guy who was blind from birth, this miraculous event, they used it as a foil to persecute Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to see how they did that. And so I'd like to look at right now how these Jewish leaders, how they used guilt, fear, and shame to control the people around them, including trying to control Jesus. And then by extension, let's listen in and, and see how we sometimes can do the same things, okay? There we go. Yeah, thanks. All right, it's good. You know what? I'm a free church guy too. We don't, we're not very expressive in church. It's all good. I won't do that anymore. It's, it was funny, maybe not the first time, but I won't do it anymore. So let me give you a little background to this passage. Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth. He put mud on his eyes, some saliva, put it on his eyes. I don't exactly know what's going on there, but... He heals this guy who was blind from the day he was born. The people who knew this man were completely amazed because they knew what his deal was. And then when they asked these people, when they asked this man what happened, he, he told the people that Jesus healed him. And people knew who Jesus was by this point. And so the people then bring this guy to the Pharisees, these guys that I just talked about, because the healing occurred on the Sabbath. And then it kind of goes downhill from there, doesn't it? So let's talk about how we sometimes lead and, and sometimes we're led through guilt. Let's talk about that now. So here's how it played out, how the Pharisees responded to Jesus' miracle. Let's go down to verse 16 in this passage, all the way down to verse 16. All of this great stuff that happened, this miraculous healing, this incredible proof that Jesus is the Son of God, 
this validation of his ministry from heaven. And, and in verse 16, it says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So that's their proclamation right off the bat. So what's going on here? The Pharisees really forthrightly declared that Jesus was not from God. Why? Because Jesus didn't fit into their overly restrictive philosophy on what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. Because in God's eyes, the Sabbath is for the blessing of God's people. But in their eyes, it was about uh, maintaining these really rigid, um, kind of ridiculous rules you know, and it didn't make any sense. So what's the conflict here? The conflict is Jesus was concerned with following God wholeheartedly. That's what he modeled for us. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were concerned with following meaningless rules so that others would think that they were holy men, that they were, were pious, and that they were legit, and all this kind of stuff. And so a little bit further down in the passage, some things happen, some discussions happen, but look at verse 24. It happens again. A second time, they summon this man back, this guy who had been blind. And they say, give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. They're trying to get this guy to declare that Jesus is, is bad. And so again, because of the ongoing animosity that these Pharisee guys have against Jesus, these religious leaders declare that Jesus himself is a sinner simply because Jesus' authentic holiness threatens their false holiness. And really, that's the essence of persecution. I don't know how much persecution you have experienced personally in this country, but trust me, around the world, our brothers and sisters get a ton of it. A ton of it. You guys have seen it firsthand. Whenever authentic holiness threatens false holiness, persecution is going to happen. Now, because of Jesus' righteousness... Because his righteousness threatened to expose their sinfulness, they set up a paradigm that said the only possible reality is that we, the Pharisees, are righteous and Jesus is a guilty sinner. Case closed. So that's what's being said here so far. Now, what's their goal? Their goal was not to enlighten people. That was their job, actually, to enlighten people, to draw people closer to God their goal wasn't to enlighten people concerning the objective truths of the Word of God, but that they wanted to ensnare people with what they, what they had added to the Word of God as indisputable <clears throat> requirements for holiness. So it's backwards. Now, for sure, the Bible teaches that there is an objective reality of right and wrong. As much as our culture says, hey, there's no moral absolutes, just whatever you feel like doing, just do it. The Bible says, no, there's an objective reality of right and wrong. And as Christians, we do have a responsibility and, and a privilege to, to, to gently correct our brothers and sisters at times. Zach, you mentioned that yesterday in the, in the devotional that you gave. And so look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians 6.1, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. It's a great, it's a great scripture. Again, Zach, you mentioned that yesterday. I was really appreciative of that. So the, these Pharisees weren't trying to gently restore. They were trying to control. They were trying to dominate. Have you ever crossed the line 
from gentle restoration to controlling people? I mean, it's a bit of a rhetorical question because I have and you have. But let's think about that for a little while. Because, you know, our deal here isn't just to hear the word of God, but it's, it's actually to let it seep into our hearts and to actually let it transform us. So let's do that. Have you ever crossed the line from gentle restoration to controlling people by trying to exploit their sense of guilt? We have this innate sense, some of us are better at it than others, but we have this innate sense of knowing just what buttons to push, just what rib to kind of dig our fingers into, figuratively speaking. Have you ever tried to malign someone else's integrity or, or label the blessings of God in their life as, as ill-gotten gain? Have you ever felt threatened by another person's success? The, the Pharisees felt threatened by Jesus' ministry and his success. Have you ever th felt threatened by another person's accomplishments or their wealth or their looks or their abilities or whatever? And in the jealousy and envy of, of your fallenness, because we're all fallen, have you ever pronounced these people sinful and wrong just because they, they threaten your insecurities in some way? Let me give you a couple examples. Um, someone might say, my coworker is really only that skinny because she starves herself. I would, I would never treat my body like that. I, I don't roll that way. My neighbor probably doesn't make that much money. I bet the only way he can drive that car and live in that house and have the campers and the boats and all this kind of stuff is because he is swimming in debt. I would never let my finances get that out of control. My classmates aren't really all that smart. I'm sure the only way they got that job was because their parents know someone. Right? When I wrote this sermon, I, I said the only reason why they got into that college was because their parents pulled some strings and then the whole college admission. And I said, let me change it, but I just told you that that's what I wrote. So, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to go there. Um, but I, I guess I just did, so. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Sometimes we see a spark of godliness in someone's life or we see some manifestation of God's blessing and it threatens to expose a corresponding sin or a shortcoming or an insecurity in our lives. And, and so we scrutinize this other person's life until we find something that we can use to pronounce them guilty or not from God or a sinner. We don't do it all the time, but we all do it at times. It usually has to do with our insecurities of some way or another. That's exactly what the leaders in our passage did this morning with Jesus. And it really is a really unhelpful way to interact with other people. Let's talk about how we lead sometimes and how sometimes we're led through fear. So we talked about guilt. Let's talk about fear. So the Pharisees in, in our passage, they really weren't getting anywhere with, with the guy who was blind and was healed. And so they call for this guy's parents to come in. They call his mom and dad in. And they start just harassing this guy's parents. They're asking them to verify the details of their son's life and his condition and all this stuff. And the, the guy's parents, they quickly, they, they give in to the Pharisees' pressure. They're grilling. I mean, they're just grilling these two people. And they really, they kind of throw their son under the bus. It's a little bit of an exchange there, but, but notice why they do that. Look at verse 22, John 9, 22. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So the guys who are supposed to be drawing people closer to God and helping them um, worship God better and grow in their faith and all this kind of stuff, they're like 
so threatened by Jesus that they're like, if anyone says, if, if like you like Jesus' Facebook page or any of his posts, I know they didn't have Facebook, but just roll with me. You're, you're done. We're kicking you out of the synagogue. Now, here today, we can just go down to the next church down the street. But back then, if you get thrown out of the synagogue, you're done. You can't go to the next one. You're done. And, and they didn't have all the things we have. Their life around the synagogue, that was it. That was your life. And so this is a big deal. And actually, I got to say, it's kind of sick the way these guys were rolling, doing exactly the opposite of what they should have been doing. Now, God has created us to live in dependence on him. But fear has a way of compelling us to act as if God is not who he says he is and that he will not do what he promises to do in our lives. Really, that's the essence of fear. And when we're afraid, we often pull away from trusting and obeying God, and we seek to solve our problems on our own. Does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar to me. I, I still, after all these years, have to relearn this lesson daily. When this happens, we move from trust mode to control mode. One of the things that you have to understand is fear and control always walk hand in hand. When we're controlling people, when we get into control mode, we need to ask some questions here. What am I afraid of? Because control always has its root in fear. What am I afraid of? What lies am I believing about God's character and nature? And why am I trying to control this situation rather than trusting God to work in it and through it? Fear and control always walk hand in hand. The Pharisees in our passage, they were afraid that Jesus was going to do two things. Number one, steal their prestige and glory, which they never really had anyway. And second, they were afraid that Jesus was going to expose their moral and spiritual bankruptcy because these guys... They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they were a mess. And so what they did is they sought to control the people around them through fear and through intimidation. And guys, sometimes we do that too, don't we? Sometimes we attempt to manage all sorts of things by trying to dominate and control situations and people. And so another question is, what does that look like in our lives? What does that look like in our lives? The Pharisees decided that if anyone disagreed with them about Jesus, they would pay the price by being kicked out of the, the synagogue. Look at the next slide on the screen here. Our culture is saturated with fear. The news media, social media, advertisers, they all seek to control us with fear. We live in a culture of fear that influences the way that we view God and interact with each other. And it, it really... Sometimes we don't even realize it, how much under the dominion of fear and anxiety that we are. Last thing I want to talk about is, is how we lead through shame. So the religious leaders in our passage, these Pharisees, they call this guy in one last time. They try to get him to like renounce Christ and, and all this, and he doesn't budge. And the guy kind of insinuates that, well, do you guys, he's been a little sarcastic. Do you guys want to follow Christ too? And look at verse 28. After he says that, the, the Pharisees hurled insults at this guy, and they said, you're this guy's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. What they're saying is, they're shaming the guy. You're like chopped liver, and we're awesome because we follow Moses. And who is this guy, Jesus? And then the, the guy that was blind, he starts like really witnessing for Christ, magnifying Jesus, just elevating him, and they flip out. 
these guys flip out. And verse 34, look at, look at what they say. This is like one of the craziest things that someone has ever said to another person in the Bible, I think. They said to this guy, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And, and they, they throw this guy out. Um, when somebody does something wrong in a guilt-innocence culture, look at the slide here. The paradigm is you made a mistake. You made a mistake. The emphasis is on the person's actions. But it, look at the next slide. When somebody does something in, wrong in a, in a shame-honor culture, the paradigm is you are a mistake. The emphasis is on the person's being, and really that's what's happening here. Um, they're saying that th this guy is garbage. He's a mistake because he dared to say something nice about a man that they were threatened by. Now, in an effort to elevate ourselves over other people, we, we shame folks all the time. We do it all the time. Maybe we don't even realize it, but we do it when we feel slighted. We do it when we feel threatened. We do it when we feel jealous or envious. We do it when we feel inferior to other people. We do it when we feel superior to other people. And we pretty much do it on days ending in the letter Y. So like all the time, right? And so when people don't live up to our expectations, we have a tendency to, let's just say, throw them out of our lives, just like these Pharisees did with this guy. Now, that could look like passive-aggressive behavior, the cold shoulder, avoiding someone, but we do that. And the question to ask is, does God treat us that way? When we uh, fail to live up to God's expectations, does he cast us out? And I think we know the answer is, is no. And so the last question I want to ask you this morning is, is what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Is it possible for us to break out of this cycle of guilt, fear, and shame? Can we truly leave the darkness of these dysfunctional ways of thinking behind us? and walk in the light. Is, it, is this doable? Did Jesus say, look at I have one, one last cartoon for you. Did Jesus say, come to me and I will give you guilt, shame, and fear? Or did he say, come to me and I will give you rest and grace and peace? And so my second and last point is this. The only way to be free is to embrace our identity in Christ. The only way to be free is to embrace our identity in Christ. I love this artwork that you guys have on the sides of the walls here. All of these talk about our identity in Christ. This is great that you guys have these up in your church because this is what I'm going to talk about as we finish up here. When you feel guilty and condemned before God and you're wondering how he could possibly forgive your sins, how he could possibly let you into the glories of heaven, when you're feeling condemned and judged and punished, when the regret of your past or current sins are overwhelming you, have you ever had that? just like dwelling on the sins of the past, when you're clinging to the false hope of thinking, if I can just be moral enough, if I can just do enough good works, then I'll finally be good enough and God will finally release me from this guilt. If this sounds a little bit like your life, you need to know that you can be free, but you have to stop clinging to these false hopes and cling to Jesus. And here's why. In his death, Jesus took the punishment for all of your failures for all of your sins. He appeased God's wrath. What does that word mean? It means that God has no more wrath for you because Jesus took it upon himself. What you need to do if you're feeling this unrelenting sense of guilt is repent. You used this word repent earlier from trying to do good works so that God will love you. You need to stop trying to 
please God by being perfect because you can't do it. You need to believe that God's grace overcomes your sin, your wickedness, that God's forgiveness pardons your wrongdoing. You need to know that because of your union with with Christ, God accepts you. And maybe you've never heard that in your life, that God accepts you and he gives you the gift of intimacy with himself. Reconciliation with God leads to peace with God. But it also leads to peace with yourself. And maybe that's precisely what you need to stop condemning yourself because God already has. The Christian life calls for repentance, not for self-condemnation. The power of the gospel truly does heal the guilt-ridden. Now, when you feel afraid and you're wondering how you can access whatever you need to control the circumstances and the people in your life, when you're feeling forsaken and abandoned and cursed by God, dominated by the sins of other people, in bondage to your own sins, when you're feeling anxious and fearful all the time, when you're clinging to the false hope of, if I can just figure out the best things to do, the best words to say to spin this situation to my benefit, or if I can just sock enough money away, I'll feel secure, or if I can just find the right doctor or the prescription or supplement or workout program, I'll be able to control my health. All of these things that we try to control, it's exhausting. If you're feeling things like this, you need to know that you can be free if you stop clinging to false hope and cling to Christ. Here's what I want to tell you on this. This is so important. If you like to write things down, write this down. Because it's going to be on the final, right? So in his death, the Lord Jesus Christ defeated everything that you could possibly worry about. He defeated death and demons and disease and divorce and destitution and dysfunction. All the Ds, they're gone. But we, those of us who are fearful... We need to repent from the idolatry of trying to find ways to control our lives outside of God's provision because that's why the fear never goes away because we're looking for a solution in a place that we can't find it. We need to realize that we, because of our union with Jesus, we have the delegated authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ to resist the things that make us afraid and seek to control us. The power of the gospel heals the fearful. And last, I want to say, when you feel ashamed before God, if this is your thing that affects you more, and you're wondering how God could possibly accept you, how he could possibly be, how you could possibly be included in his community, when you feel rejected and disgraced and humiliated and unworthy, when you're clinging to this false hope of thinking, if I can just manage my external brand on social media, then people will think better of me. If I can just connect with the right people, then I'll be one of the cool kids and people will like me. If I can earn enough, if I can wear the right clothes, listen to the right music, have the right stickers on my laptop, have all the right artwork on my walls, then I'll finally have the prestige that I'm creating. If you're thinking, I wish I could do something, anything to cover, to hide how truly and completely unworthy I feel I am. If these are the thoughts that run through your mind, I want to tell you that you can be free, and like the other two, if you stop clinging to false hope and start clinging to Christ. Maybe if you're more of a shame-based person, I hope this comment helps you. In his death, Jesus removed your shame. He removed that deep 
dark sense that you will never be good enough. And he covered you with his honor. He changed God's evaluation of you from shameful to honored. That's such a huge deal. You need to repent if this is you. From, and you can repent from using all of the cultural systems at your disposal to promote your status in the eyes of God and the eyes of other people. You need to believe that the grace of God overcomes your sense of unworthiness. There's more I could say, but I think we're running out of time. I do want you to know that the power of the gospel heals the shamed. The power of the gospel heals the fearful. The power of the gospel heals those who feel guilty. What I'd like to do now is invite the worship team back up. And as, as they come up, let's, let's just pray together. Let's pray together. Father, the power of your gospel releases us from being controlled by guilt and fear and shame. It also releases us from controlling others in this way. We're so grateful that you have sent your son Jesus to overcome the contaminating influences of a, of a world system that is set against you. We're so thankful that you have sent your son Jesus to release us from our innate compulsion to sin against you and to sin against other people. And we're so grateful that you have sent your son Jesus to destroy the works of the devil in our lives. And so today we humble ourselves before you so that we might be lifted up to walk in the light of the freedom that you so richly give to us. Give us the grace that is necessary to thrive in the doing of your will. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.